Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today my guest, once again, is Dr. Eric Russell. Dr. Russell's forte is chiropractic philosophy. As such, I thought he would be the perfect guest for a conversation I've been wanting to have. This might seem simple and overly basic, but I wanted to talk with him today about subluxation. It's often surprising to me how many questions I get from students regarding subluxation, simply because the teaching in the schools is all over the place and often heavily biased by whoever ends up teaching the course. Today we're going to cover this topic from a rational, external point of view. In other words, while we may have our own biases created by experience, we're going to cover the topic in its entirety and try to fit the puzzle pieces together into one clear image. So without any further ado, Dr. Eric Russell. Hello, Dr. Russell. Thank you for joining us again. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. So today we're going to talk about subluxation, something that seems simple, but often becomes very complicated. But um, the last time we talked, I mentioned how in my first year or two, I had like this existential crisis where I didn't know why I was in my office or why my patients were coming. And I guess to elaborate on that a little bit, what ended up happening was um, my my crisis probably lasted maybe a week (laughs) of seeing patients and not knowing why I was there. And then I kind of came to this conclusion, which was against everything I've been taught in school, because I went to LACC, which was, I kind of went, you know, if there's no subluxation, then there's really no chiropractic. And so if people are coming here for chiropractic, what they're really coming for is the correction of their subluxation. And I didn't know anything about that. And I thought, well, at least now I know where to go. And so I realized I'm probably not the only one who's that way, who's had that problem, probably depends a lot on schools. So I thought, let's let's talk about subluxation because we can do it in a way that's both philosophical and scientific and be intelligent about it. Because sure. um, I think there's a lot more, there's a lot more meat behind it than a lot of people know or believe or have been told. And so um, uh, we can just start because as you mentioned before, you, you teach this in philosophy one. And so um, I'll just let you kind of start with basic definition of what is a subluxation. Well, that's an interesting thing because I've been teaching chiropractic philosophy to chiropractic students since 2008. Uh, My specialty is usually like philosophy one, like first term, here I am in chiropractic school, here we go. And, you know, it's a lot to unpack for people because, you know, Rome in, let's see, 2017, in the Journal of Chiropractic Australia published that there were at that time, over 600 different published definitions of subluxation in literature. And then Rome has said on stage or in communication that he expects that number to be double today. So here's an incoming, I want to change the world, first term student walking into chiropractic school, which they may or may not be introduced to to philosophy. They may or may not be introduced to like Gonstead's system. They just may be taught how to manipulate without a system of analysis. And then you're like, hey, a couple of things I want to teach you. Number one, there are over 200 different techniques in chiropractic. And what most people do is combine those techniques, elements of each, just to make their own. So the, probably the number is infinite in the chiropractic profession. And let's talk about subluxation. Subluxation is the center of what chiropractors do. It's what we do in our office. Every chiropractor is adjusting something. Well, there's... Now 1,200, but at least in the literature, 600 different definitions of subluxation. 
including a portion of the profession that says subluxation is BS <laughs> and others that says it's central to what chiropractic is. Enjoy your first term. Let's help you sort through all this mess. So, I mean, that's basically, just think about it. If you like as an incoming student, there's no, there's no homogeny. There's no central theory. There's no, but I like to look at this kind of studies and I've been working with students for a long time. So there's a couple key elements. I'll just break down for everyone. The first one is there was a large qualitative study of how chiropractors think and practice by McDonald. And I think that was in 2002. I'm not one of those people like Dan Murphy that can spout off studies and has them memorized. <laughs> I, I, I'm, so I'm going to be kind of loose with them, but I'm happy to give people any reference that they need if they want to contact me. But, you know, 2002, the McDonald study came out. It was the largest qualitative study, which means it wasn't like yes or no. It's like more descriptive in nature. And 88.6% of the profession thought subluxation was important. And they wanted, they thought it was important and wanted to retain it in chiropractic. Now let's, let's just talk science. The first thing is 88.6 is not a majority. It's a super majority. It is like a shiny unicorn that farts rainbows and glitter kind of rarity to have 88.6% of the profession agree upon everything. So I, to me, I'm like subluxation is central to chiropractic. The adjustment is central to chiropractic. Um, I consider myself a pretty principled chiropractor, but it is of all the interventions that any chiropractor can do, the adjustment is probably the most powerful. So to me, as long as someone has an adjustment as the central part of their chiropractic practice, I'm pretty good. But in true chiropractic fashion, over 50% of the chiropractors wanted to prescribe drugs in the same study. So it's like we, <laughs> as a profession, but we are, I tell my students, like you can quote me on this, we are a hot mess of a profession, but we are a beautiful hot mess. <laughs> so when you look at subluxation, there's some key things. How we view subluxation philosophically and through science is probably the most important aspect of, of the subluxation. Do you want to just dive deeper into those? Yeah, let's go deeper because I think a lot. I know a lot of people want to be armed with information where they can defend a stance like that, especially a stance that eighty, whatever you said, eighty six percent of the profession. Eight point six. Yeah, if that many people like, we should be able to defend it fairly decently. I would think. Well, it's 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 super interesting because I'll just get out some of the other things I tell my first term students. I'm like. Um, chiropractic's not weird. Chiropractors make it weird. So mm -hmm. typically I don't have, I think in 15 years of private practice, I had one patient ask me for any studies. The rest of them just want to know, am I in the right place and can you help me? So this, this evidence argument is typically amongst chiropractors within the profession instead of how we deal with our, our patients and educate them. So if, I think it's important for a chiropractor to um, first of all, understand evidence and understand science and the, and the impact of science on philosophy. They're not meant to be separate, philosophy or science. You're meant to do both. Um, to me, uh, I think the most practical thing for a chiropractor, particularly a Gonstead chiropractor, is when I'm talking to someone, I think about Chris Kent who said, or Dr. Chris Kent who said, 
well, what kind of evidence will you accept? So it's like, for me, it's like, you can, I want to be able to go PhD level on science if someone needs it. And quite frankly, Bubba that walks in off the street to get adjusted, he, he may not want the science. So who I'm talking to will kind of have a range of what evidence I'll use. So I don't bury everybody with science, but I think it's equally as bad for a chiropractor not to be well-versed in science. Um, Dr. Kelly Holt, who's president of the New Zealand College of Chiropractic, said it best. He's like, not every chiropractor will do research, and they're not meant to be researchers, but every chiropractor should be a consumer of science. Like, you should be able to look at a study and say it's a good study, it's a bad study, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So the whole mess around subluxation really revolves around two concepts, and I call them abstract and concrete. If you read Stevenson's chiropractic textbook, it's metaphysical and physical. So things that are metaphysical or abstract are things that you cannot see, touch, measure, or weigh. Um, things like love, justice, you know, those are two concepts. Like I, I tell students, like physiologically, how what do we notice in the body when you're in love? And you're like, your pupils dilate, your hands get sweaty, et cetera. But if I stimulate those things physiologically in your body, does that mean you're in love? And they're like, no, I'm like, there are outcomes of being in love. So sometimes we have this matter has an effect by the metaphysical. There's a connection between the abstract and concrete and the metaphysical and the physical. But some of the key concepts in chiropractic that are metaphysical or abstract, which we will never be able to measure through a RCT, a randomized controlled clinical trial, are things like innate intelligence. Mm-hmm. So you can't measure it. You can't, you can see outcomes in the body, but you will never be able to measure it. And when you read Stevenson's textbooks, innate is designed to be abstract, infinite, and perfect. So how would you going to ever measure something that's infinite? So it's like, you can't, you can't. So there's concepts in chiropractic that don't fit science. Well, so like the dilemma, that. what's that? In the, in the same vein, um, Medical research will often refer to homeostasis and other an, another untestable concept. Yes. Yeah. And yeah it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I think so. That's an interesting thing. So don't let me forget that because okay. what you're talking about is also very crucial. So the first one's abstract and concrete. So when you look at a subluxation, to me, it's an you know, I have a biomechanical issue. I have a nervous system interference. Both of those can be probably measured. But I'm also, when I talk subluxation to a patient or to a student or to an audience, inherent in the subluxation is an interference to innate intelligence. So of the three components I defined, two are concrete, but one is abstract. Two are physical, one is metaphysical. B.J. Palmer, malposition of vertebra, occlusion of a foramen, pressure on nerve and interference to the mental impulse or in, innate intelligence. The fourth component for him is metaphysical. So knowing that, it's like I know there's components of my definition of subluxation can be measured, but others cannot. So it all started in the 1930s when a group of philosophers formed what's called the Vienna Circle. Um, Karl Popper was one of these main people. And this concept of verification or empiricism came out of this group in the 1930s. And what they said is in, in order for something to be true, it has to be proven true. It has to be testable. So verification theory, 
um, is really important that. So it's not that it potentially can be true. Things aren't true unless you have science to prove it. And what's happened is that verification empiricist view of the philosophy of science has taken hold in chiropractic. And it's really dominant politically. So what you see is a bunch of researchers and an element of the profession that quite frankly has said, there's no such thing as a subluxation because we have not been able to demonstrate it through science. And when I say through science, we're only talking a particular form of science. There's multiple forms of science, but it's only through one variable being reduced or changed, everything else is the same in the body. So this, this uh, empiricist view, quantitative view. Um, so if we're lucky, the people who hold that viewpoint either want to define subluxation as a diminished range of motion or a sticky joint, or worst case scenario, they have said there's no such thing as a subluxation because we can't prove it through one particular type of science. As a result, there's probably half of the chiropractic schools in existence that have distanced themselves from the concept of subluxation. I'm surprised it's only half. I would have thought it was more. Oh, I'm <laughs> guessing. I'm, I'm, I'm being nice today. <laughs> <laughs> but so that's one. So this, you know, do you include, and I'm not judging, you know, I'm going to be honest. Like, so the concept of mechanism fits within the material. Like you view the body as a machine. Let's fix the machine um, and, and basically replace parts or fix parts. And the abstract component to looking at the body and health is called vitalism. It, it looks in, in holism. So vitalism, there's an inherent intelligence in the system. Holism is the body is more than the sum of its parts. I have seen mechanistic Gonstead chiropractors and I have seen vitalistic chiropractor, uh, Gonstead chiropractors. So this little division within the profession also exists within the Gonstead system as well. Mm -hmm. And I think there's also a, maybe a third portion who really try to do both. Yeah. Well, I think that's an important part is, um, you know, my, I'm like, I'm a vitalistic chiropractor. I'm a philosophical chiropractor, but I would say, 99.9 .9 of every patient that I ever saw in my 15 year career seeing patients, they started off as with some condition. They came in for low back pain, what or whatever it was. Over time, I said, Hey, have you thought about staying with this asymptomatically for regular checkups for overall health? And I would transition them into a vitalistic, but even as a vitalistic chiropractor, you're probably adjusting people mechanistically or condition-based to start with. Mm -hmm. So I think it's ethical if you show them something and let them make the choice based upon the evidence you've given them, not do high-pressure sales. But I would try to train. I myself get checked once a week. And I was very fortunate when we had time that we worked together to get some of the best adjustments in my life from you. But once a week, whether if I need it or not, I get checked. Mm -hmm. That's a more of a vitalistic model instead of, hey, my back hurts. Once my back hurts and I feel better, I'm done with care. But, you know, when my, my facet tropism acts up, I want that to feel better too. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So we got this weird abstract in concrete and the physical and metaphysical. And to me, there's elements. If you talk about innate intelligence, as central as subluxation is to the profession, to me, is, is innate central to what chiropractic is. So I will never take innate out of my definitions, which I know that means that there's parts of the definitions that aren't going to be great to fit with science. Um, the second thing is paradigms. And I think you kind of talked about it. There are multiple forms of science. There's quantitative, qualitative, uh, phenomenology. And uh, from my PhD in higher education, which I'm a student of, we go through all the different types. We do statistics. We do, um, like I said, phenomenology, qualitative, all these different types of science. But there's one science that reigns supreme and that's that quantitative, measurable, like, like the Vienna Circle talks about. Mm -hmm. So even though there's legitimate forms of science, more than one, one is the Mac Daddy or Daddy Mac. And that's something else that kind of happens here. So even though medicine says homeostasis can't really be proven, well, one, they have dominance in their paradigm, the, the medical paradigm is the dominant paradigm in the United States. So they don't have to, they don't even have to hold themselves up to the same scrutiny that we have to get held up to because they're the ones in charge, <laughs> right? So it's like, well, I make the rules, but I don't have to follow them. You have to follow them is kind of what goes on there. So this, this, it's not equal. This playing field's not equal for chiropractors, you know, and then, I think what's really important when you look at science is if the body is highly integrative, highly variable, it's never going to be able to fit this form of science very well that you probably did when you were studying chemistry or biology or physics. So that's just some of the key highlights. So it's already a hot mess. Well, you know, there's another aspect, and I've just recently been thinking about this. So it always hit me like, I was like, there's something missing. And I'm trying to wrap my brain around it. It finally occurred to me one day. But I thought, so there seems to be an, an unwritten expectation that in science, you're going to go from no knowledge to perfect knowledge. And there's no room for doing science that's intended for discovery, where you go, well, I found a few things. I don't really know what they mean, but maybe they lead me to somewhere else. And they go, well, if you don't have a perfect understanding, then we can't use it. And they've taken out that discovery phase. When you look at old scientists, you find a lot of them spent most of their life in the discovery phase. And it was only at the end that they put it together into something concrete and said, here's what I discovered. Yeah. Thomas Kuhn wrote a book. Um, uh, it's like, it just went, <laughs> but it's about the paradigms of, of science. And Thomas Kuhn will say there's basically a dominant form of science. And occasionally if enough people work outside of that dominant circle and it's called revolutionary science if if it can change the way that science is done but it's a slow process that takes time so for example one of the things that i was taught when i was in when i was biology and i'm i'm you know 30 years graduate or since i started chiropractic school so it's been 30 years since i was in college but you know we were just a pro we were just a byproduct of your genes and now science is kind of mostly understood there's epigenetics and factors that turn mm -hmm. on and off genes. That was not part of science when I was. Neither. So, yes. you know, science can change, but it's a slow principle number six applies to science. It's a slow process to change science.
Mm -hmm. So occasionally you'll see someone say, well, science hasn't proven this yet, but I know it's true. But you'll hear language through science like, well, that's just a theory. Mm -hmm. and, I, and, and they say that about subluxation, like that's just a theory because it hasn't had enough of a certain type of evidence to show that it exists. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> so by now we're sitting in class. I've, I have completely destroyed all hope for any first term student. I'm <laughs> like, I got two options. We can, I can tell you there's never been a better time to be a chiropractor and we can sing Kumbaya around and toast marshmallows and make <laughs> s'mores, which sounds awesome. Or I can kind of give you how diverse the landscape is because you have to start figuring out your path in that. So we have abstract versus concrete. We have dominant forms of science. So if you look at Rome's article with 600 different definitions, to me, the only way you can make sense of it is to put them in categories. And I have four categories that I put subluxations when I teach students to. The first one is a philosophical model. If we have a philosophical model of subluxation, we're going to include innate intelligence. Mm -hmm. That's the pro. The con is it's not going to fit science. Right. <laughs> you know, and I know that. It's like if I say this is causing an interference to how innate intelligence communicates to the body, that is a philosophical statement, not going to fit science. And so that's the benefit of those. A lot of the innate models of subluxation fit within that. The second one is a scientific definition of subluxation. If we have that, that fits science, a type of science, it gets more legitimacy in that paradigm. But the downside is you have to exclude innate intelligence. So it is a physical concrete only definition of subluxation. Mm -hmm. So we can say subluxation is a diminished range of motion, a sticky joint. And there are some people who advocate that the role of a chiropractor is to unstick st sticky joints or unstuck Stuck sticky joints. joints. <laughs> right. I grew up on a farm, so Walmart's wash the car. Occasionally, bad grammar comes out. <laughs> and to me, it's like I understand what they're saying, but on the other hand, it's like how it's depressing for me to think that my job is just to unstuck sticky joints all day. Yeah, You know, so you really kind of are struggling with that one. And now the problem is biomechanically, we can have a joint dysfunction. You can have something at the zygopophyseal joints. You can have something called spinal loading where the, the region like the lumbars is locked. Biomechanically, it's more from like compression and vibration, like long haul truck drivers will get something that that spinal loading so you can have segmental, postural, regional type of dysfunction. So already we're having problems with defining a subluxation is because there's multiple types of biomechanical issues that can happen in the body. Mm -hmm. Even though all of them are measurable. Mm -hmm. Same thing with the nervous system. We know a subluxation affects the nervous system in some way. Mm -hmm. And in Rome's article, if you experience pain due to a subluxation, there is a nervous system component. So mm -hmm. now we have, you know, the literature supports that we have disafferent input into the brain. 
You can have upper motor neuron lesions, issues with the core to cause hyperreflexia, hypertonicity. You can have lower motor neuron lesions, which is more after it exits the IVF, which is unilateral presentation and diminished muscle tone and diminished reflexes. You can have a... Um, you can have somatosomatic reflexes, somatoautonomic reflexes. You can have inflammation. There's almost like a gazillion types of different neurological issues. All of them are measurable. But the problem is they're not repeatable person to person. So if you have a T6 subluxation, I have a T6 subluxation, the neurology that's affected in my subluxation versus yours may be different. Mm-hmm. And it's different for the person episode to episode. Mm -hmm. So yes, we affect, we can show that neurology is affected with the subluxation through science, but since it's highly integrative and not repeatable, it's hard to concretely within that paradigm say, yes, mm -hmm. <laughs> this is the neurological involvement of a subluxation. So usually we focus more on mechanoreceptors and proprioceptors. So if you have diminished re movement, you're going to have altered proprioception. Yep. It's just because it's not moving as well, right? Yep. So that's yep. why they're like, let's just kind of stop talking about all those others and just kind of focus on maybe pain and maybe mechano and proprioceptors. That's it. Um, but that's the other thing you'll see a lot of like, um, you know, out of New Zealand, the model is, uh, disappointation. So more science is showing that bad motion of a joint due to whether it be segmental or regional or whatever causes diminished afferent input into the brain, which then alters how the brain processes that information and diminishes the outputs of the brain. So sensory motor integration is diminished in this model. So this model of describing subluxation is a concrete model. It doesn't include innate. It's only going from the body to the brain and then bad brain outputs. And it's better to show through science um, that way. That's why you see chiropractic neurology makes such a strong um, presence in the chiropractic profession. You know, you and I were at a, a, the same chiropractic institution, usually Chiropractic neurology is big for students. And to me, the students that love chiropractic neurology is usually that one that likes the concreteness, that likes mm -hmm. science to kind of show what they do, mm -hmm. which is different than the philosophical model. Mm -hmm. So already one of our challenges, innate intelligence controls the body, but in the science model, bad joint function alters brain function. So is the problem efferent? coming to the body or afferent going to the, you know, so it's like these models don't match very well. I think it takes a philosophical uh, diplomat and then a neurological diplomat to get together. I know one human being that could probably do that as one person, um, but there's work to do to make those, but philosophy and science were not ever meant to be separate to me, mm -hmm. David. They're, you know, That's to right. me, it's like, okay, if we're talking, if I'm, if I'm at a philosophy conference, I'm going to talk about the philosophical implications of subluxation, innate. If I'm talking to a medical provider, I'm probably going to do more of the neurology. Mm -hmm. So I have a preference, which I like, but I'm going to tailor to what the audience wants. There's a lot of dump of information. So I know that we're supposed to change the channel up. So do you have any questions, anything? <laughs> 
the uh well and i think the um the vitalistic side exists on the neurological side yep. and so if you need to talk vitalism but people are intimidated by that you just talk neurology and so i've always seen so in my those early stages when i was trying to get out of the ex existential crisis i had a couple observations one for me was that the subluxation was both mechanical and neurological or mechanical and vitalistic and so i couldn't necessarily predict the vitalistic side, but I could the mechanical. And if I could find the mechanical lesion and make it work right, the vitalistic tended to self-correct. But the correction of the vitalistic side is how I knew that I had adjusted the right mechanical problem. And so yeah. I kind of, I, it was like checking my work. And so um, an example, maybe a few weeks ago, I had um, a patient who was having trouble breathing and it wasn't like it was a stuck rib or something where they mechanically couldn't breathe. They were having a neurological difficulty breathing. So I adjusted them and immediately it was gone. They could breathe just fine. And they were so wowed by it. Their question to me was, what nerve was that? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. <laughs> how would I know? <laughs> and I don't think yeah, that was... Well, really how the hell do I know? Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like Reggie Gold. How the hell do I know? Um, so it it is it is fascinating. To me, I, I think what you and I are talking about is the bodies connected. And even let's talk about technique for a second. Gonstead, you know, we're... In the literature, it says you have segmental techniques, you have postural techniques, and you have tonal techniques. And Gonstead's always classified as a segmental. Like you're just in T6 in relation to T7 or, you know, one to the one above to one below. Tonal models are usually upper cervical in nature, you know, where it's the whole system. And then CBPs usually categorize as a postural technique. Okay. But I, I tell them, I, I tell the students, I'm like, okay, as a Gonset chiropractor and as a vitalist, I think the body's interconnected. So I may intervene with that body segmentally, but I'm expecting posture to improve and overall health to improve in that body. So even though Gonset's application is segmental, I'm expecting segmental, postural, and tonal outcomes because the body's connected. But that is my dead giveaway that I'm a vitalist <laughs> and why I think science has some problems because the body is so intricately connected, it's hard to reduce it down to one variable. So, yeah, it's interesting when you start to look at these things of how, how much difference there are uh, within those. So you, you kind of have the philosophical model and the science model. The third definition is what's called consensus. And the literature, uh, my favorite quote was by Dr. Ed Owens at Life University, who's a researcher. He's like, consensus definitions are pretty much worthless for research. And it's true because what consensus definitions are, they're usually political in nature, they're usually at a conference, and they're usually compromised to the point where no one likes them. Yep, that's so, right. <laughs> where like I graduated in 96, you know, in 1995 ish, 94, 95, the association of chiropractic colleges. So all the chiropractic colleges in North America, all the presidents came together and agreed upon a definition of subluxation. And it's like, and, or has like, it may influence overall health and had like a, a lot of and, ors and maze in the, in the statement. After that conference was over, one chiropractic college president pulled out of the definition and said, I, I, I rescind my, and it just has kind of crumbled. Half the profession thinks it's still a working model. The other half thinks it's historical in nature. So 
it's there's some can be some dirty politics when you do go to a conference. Like I can go to a conference, attend a conference. Let's say it's chiropractic education conference. You and I are there, but you and I are leaving early. You know, like on Sunday, we our, our flights at ten and the conference ends at noon. They can have a working group at the end of the conference at one p.m. and it could be just five people in the room come up with a definition, but it basically says this was the definition from that conference. Yeah, and because you and I were there, we get we we in a sense have voted our agreement because that came out of the conference and we can document that you and I was there. So you see some, like, it's hard to get the profession to agree. You'll see consensus definitions from one side of the profession or from the other. They're political in nature. And I just tell my students, they're not good for research and no one likes them. So consensus is pretty easy. We got philosophical science and consensus. The fourth one I think has the most, utilization in chiropractic and they're called operational what operational is is to say okay we have this metaphysical or abstract component in chiropractic called innate intelligence which we can't ever measure but we know it impacts the body and changes uh, homeostasis and that's i wanted to kind of <laughs> stop on that for a second you talked about homeostasis earlier it's defined in the literature two ways the first one is just a set point it can be good it could be bad. Like my thermostat could be set at 50 today. That's not my optimal temperature of the house, but it's at homeostasis because it's 50 degrees constantly in the house. Whereas <laughs> if you want homeostasis defined more that fits like an innate and vitalistic viewpoint, it's the optimal thriving of the body instead of just a bad set, a, a set point. So even homeostasis is defined in literature two different ways. And those are pretty contrary ways. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> totally are. But, you know, again, literature, I, I basically printed out like all the different studies in the last five to 10 years on subluxation. And I have maybe 10 of them we can go through. It's a mixed bag. Hmm. What's in the literature. And I will say this on record. There's politics and science. Mm -hmm. Yeah, whatever journal I'm part of, sometimes I'm going to promote my viewpoint. So, you know, idyllic science is is neutral, but as the philosopher Daniel Dennett says, it's hard to reduce your, you know, there's no such thing as bias-free science. Your job is to try to reduce your biases the best you can, but you can't eliminate your biases. Well, I think that's where it gets hard too, because if you're a student and you're your very first class, and some doctors hitting you with all this anti-subluxation science, what you don't know is that they had to cherry pick to do that. And so if they cherry pick that science, that means that there is other science, yep. but you're a first term student. How do you know what it is? So they're basically taking advantage of the fact that they know you don't know. And so they're, to me, I would consider it academic bullying is really how I've always no. seen it. And in some of it's not intentional. I mean, it's our prerequisites true. into chiropractic school are heavy science-based. Yeah. So when they come in and take philosophy one, I'm seeing things are kind of against that empiricist dominant paradigm in my yeah. class. And they're already at this first existential crisis as a first-term student. Like, am I a scientific chiropractor or am I a phil philosophical chiropractor where I'm like saying you should be both a first quarter, the first term, first trimester student can't keep that in their head. They right. tend to be either or. 
So those that are strong in science don't like philosophy right off the bat, mm-hmm. you know, and then they have to defend their position. So they're not trying to just to understand the lay of the land. And then each school has an influence. So 90%, I'm this, this number, I'm just flat out making up. <laughs> 90% of the curriculum is the same because we have to teach the boards, but it's that 10%, which is different because you can teach some techniques, not others, have philosophy, not have philosophy, promote integrative care or not, you know, there's all these different types of institutional philosophies. So when I was at a school early in my career, chiropractic students, I'd come in and talk about philosophy and they next, it was a wild west. There was no direction from the institution. So I could say innate is central to chiropractic. Next professor would literally come in and say innate's bullshit or I'm sorry, BS. So (laughs) the students felt like ping pongs. So On one hand, there's some academic freedom, but on the other hand, it's like mom said versus dad said, they're just like bouncing around and have to figure it out. So then you say, okay, let's have, let's kind of tell the students more what we want. Like we can be pro-vitalistic, pro-science, whatever, but students still have, there's a wide variety of students. So every vitalistic student, every vitalistic school produces mechanistic students. Mm-hmm. And every mechanistic school will still produce vitalistic students. Mm-hmm. And those tend to be sharp because they're always swimming against the grain, I mean, against the, against the stream during school. Mm-hmm. So this wide range you see in the profession, wide range of institutions, that wide range exists in every classroom I've ever been in my career. Yeah. So we covered philosophical, we covered science, we covered consensus, no one likes the fourth one's operational. So if we say there's innate intelligence that affects the body. So in theory, innate intelligence when it's communicating to the body should improve adaptability of the body. When you're subluxated and the body can't communicate, it should diminish adaptability of the body. In science, the best measurement we currently have on overall health is heart rate variability. Mm-hmm. Heart rate variability is the space between the heartbeats. And you want the more adaptable the body is, the healthier it is, the more variable those spaces should be instead of like one second between beats, which is what we were taught back in the day. It may be half a second, maybe a, a, a second and a half. So the more adaptable, the more reactive, appropriately reactive the body is, the better your heart rate vari- variance will be. And that is proven through science to be one of the best indicators for health. So if we look at outcomes, if someone is subluxated, they should have a diminished heart rate variability. After we adjust them and improve communication of the body, we should see heart rate variability improve. Mm -hmm. So we're using science and physiological outcomes of the body to infer innate intelligence being connected in the body or a neurological connection within the body. That's where almost all the current research is going in subluxation. It's not to, you can't study innate, but if I can show better health outcomes through science, then I can infer that the body's connected innate intelligence exists. Yeah, you know, that actually kind of brings me to another thought that I had during that existential crisis, because once I had this concept of subluxation, I then ran into a problem of, well, how do I know what an adjustment is? 
how do I know <laughs> if I go to the subluxation? So existential crisis part two <laughs> is I'm in with a patient and I push on them and they go, did you get it? And I go, I don't know, <laughs> like how there has to be a border. And so as I worked through that, I came to this conclusion for me that I found that when I gave poor adjustments, or maybe I should say incomplete adjustments, where I felt like there was movement, but I didn't reach a certain point that I knew I needed to get to, the patient would either experience minor improvement or not lasting improvement. But if I could mm. cross that threshold, then I knew for sure they would get better and they would. And I began to develop this concept in my head like I was flipping circuit breakers, that a breaker is either um, on or it's off. It's mm. never stuck between the two. It's either on or off. And that if I could and so if I could get past that point, I could either flip the breaker on or the breaker was still stuck off. And I gave it a noble effort, but I didn't quite get it flipped on. And that's how I started thinking about it because for my brain at that time, that's all I could understand. And I was like, okay, that's my idea of what I'm turning on and turning off. Well, I think, you know, I, I think you'd appreciate Rome who says, despite all these definitions, we're adjusting something. <laughs> and I've been adjusting something since 1895. But one of the things that you and I have in common is we've both taught Gonstead in chiropractic institutions. And it's amazing to me that very few students actually follow a system. And I tell them, it's like, what's your free throw routine? Like I put my right foot three, three things over and I dribble the ball twice and I spin the ball once. I visualize the ball going in the bucket and I, and I shoot. But when they go to adjust somebody, they have no plan. Mm -hmm. And then... I think I still fall back into observation, static palpation, motion palpation. I'm sorry, I got instrumentation before I start to. So observation, instrumentation, static motion. And I'll confirm with x-ray. Then it's like green light, green light, green light, green light. I'll adjust. And if there's times where things don't match, I don't. And then, of course, the concept of post-checking somebody in chiropractic school is almost vacant. Right. It's like they'll go through this elaborate process to analyze somebody and they'll give a thrust. You're like, that's it. I'm like, so how do you know that was it? And like I heard a pop. I'm like, well, how do you know the pop occurred where you put your thrust? And they're like, they look at you like, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so how'd you find the subluxation? And like, well, I they had a restricted range of motion. I'm like, so then maybe you want to see if that's better? Like, oh, you know, so they're not bad intending students. There's just not that emphasis on an analysis and every component of the subluxation that we were taught, you know. So if I say there's a biomechanical issue in subluxation and a neurological issue, I need to verify that the mechanical is better and the neurological is better. Yeah. Do you think that for, um, for practicing chiropractors, do you think that really truly your understanding of subluxation and how you conceptualize it affects whether you are successful in what you do or if you are highly frustrated i think it's i think your understanding of subluxation and i'm not here to tell you what subluxation is i think that's someone's got to work through that themselves mm -hmm. but to me clarity on your philosophy clarity on what is happening in the body and clarity of what a subluxation is would one increase your certainty mm -hmm, about sure. what you're doing and if you have increased certainty you're going to communicate better to whatever you're doing so i have some friends who are highly mechanistic in nature highly low back pain headache only on their 
But you know what? That's they are certain that that's the role of chiropractic. They are ethical. I don't agree with them, but I I don't chastise them because they are walking their talk mm-hmm. and treating people ethically. And so anyone that wants more wellness can come to me. And sometimes they like treating low back pain all day. And I'm, that's not my jam. So I think your your certainty helps understand what you're doing. Your certainty helps what the intervention you're going to do, how it will potentially help the body. Um, and then helps with communication and overall helps you understand where your place is within chiropractic. Yeah. And now that we've talked a lot about how, for the doctor perspective, um, the one other aspect I can think of is um, what about the patients? To what degree is it, do you think it's necessary to communicate subluxation to patients or are they okay with just leaving them in the dark and you're popping bones and that's all there is to it. Yeah. I think you have to educate the patients because the last thing I would want is one of my patients to be out and someone ask them what you, what you do in your office and they have no understanding. Um, I think the, the pitfall that we have is students are guilty of this and I'm going to reference students cause that's mostly what I deal with. They want some, some lecture that they can give, to anybody that's a skeptic of chiropractic that's indefensible and can never be challenged. That is so great. And, and I equate that to a tennis, tennis serve ace. They want to be able to ace every yeah. serve. And I'm like, that's not your job, particularly with patients. Your job is to go up to the net and just bop the ball over. So what I do is what I would recommend with people when I talk about communication to patients, and I'm, I'm talking to actual practicing chiropractors who, who do it at a high level. But I want to, first of all, know what their motivation motivation factor is. You know, it's what, what do they enjoy most in life? I want to be able to physiologically show the improvement with care, but also want to relate those improvements or decrease performance if they're subluxated to what they enjoy most. So I'm, I'm a granddad, you know, I have a five-year-old granddaughter. If you can say, Hey, not only get your low back pain better, but I want to be able to get you up and down off the floor so you can play with the granddaughter more. That's a motivating factor for me. So mm-hmm. relate subluxation to those things that are important. So sometimes we just get we just get busy, you know, and BJ Palmer called it slipping and checking. So in practice, sometimes I got I just don't feel like talking about subluxation today, you know, but that's your primary job is to relate subluxation to yeah. everything. Yeah, and subluxations can be weird too because like one week you see the patient, you just one thing and something gets better. And then you just and then the next week they have a different problem, you just something else and that gets better. But then the patient hits you with the question of, well, which one's actually my problem? And you're like, well, whichever like <laughs> that's such a hard question, but you get those kind of questions in practice and you're like, I don't really know how to answer this in a way that you'll understand. And sometimes I'm not even sure I totally understand it. I just know that it's like those flipping circuit breakers. Well, last time this circuit breaker was off, and this time this one is. Well, David, I'm going to put you on a spot, and you can defer back to me if you don't like this question. Are they paying you for the adjustment, or are they paying you for your expertise and analysis? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of chiropractors are trying to get paid for the adjustment, but I really think that the analysis, because I'll say this, especially, I didn't realize it till probably within the last year, but I, I worked in a few different offices and I looked, talked to patients in different areas and all of a sudden they were all telling me the same thing. They're like, so there's one patient in particular I can think of. 
Um, she had ultimately, she, <laughs> I don't know how this happened. She was in Mexico and fell upside down, inverted from a height of about three feet and landed on her head. Um, oh, and the rest wow. of the story she won't tell. <laughs> so I'm imagining what might have happened in Mexico. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, so I start, I start fixing her. I fix her up and then her boyfriend comes in. I start fixing him. And one day as I'm going through scoping, she says out loud, and she started saying this almost every time, she'd say, I've never seen a chiropractor do such a thorough, a thorough assessment. You're checking everything. You're checking it twice. You're not adjusting to your comment. And I said, well, I guess I'm naive. I said, does not everybody do that? And she said, no. She said, the vast majority of chiropractors, you walk in the room, they tell you to lay down in your stomach. They start pushing on a few things and then you're done. There's like zero assessment. And I was like, wow, the contrast between, it's not even like a poor assessment. The, the contrast between a thorough assessment and no assessment that, yeah, that's probably where the true value actually lies and where the difference maker is. And I told her, I said, yeah. I might adjust a little different. I do I do the cervicals in the chair and I don't do them face up and I'm not doing anteriority. So yeah, there's some difference in the adjustment. But if you really want to know where the value is, it's in the assessment to make sure I'm doing the right thing. So I, I, I agree. Point. Um, I was exposed to a chiropractor who's a 1949 graduate from Palmer, was a strict Blair upper cervical chiropractor by the name of Dr. Marianne Pruitt. And I want to give a shout out to Rob Sinnott and especially to Dan Lyons. I just... You know, my growth in chiropractic is strongly influenced by those guys. But Marianne Pruitt, like she, I was a hundred miles away. So I'd go visit her and just hang out because they don't make chiropractors like that anymore. You know, and I get faxes from her. She's like, I torqued an atlas um, that was so rotated that almost busted the screws out of my forearm. I get to, you know, but she was like, the goal in upper cervical is not to adjust. So there was two times that she was, not able to practice and I would go over there and she asked me to keep her practice going. I'm like, Dr. Pruitt, I'm a constant chiropractor. She's like, you love chiropractic. So, I mean, I would, I would do the instrumentation, do pattern analysis, call my friend, John Goodfellow, like every night, like what the hell am I doing? But it's interesting in her practice. Like when, when a patient was in pattern and needed an adjustment, they felt like they let you down. They're like, I'm so sorry. I let you down. I'm sorry I didn't hold that adjustment. And it made me reflect on the fact that isn't that the goal of every Gonstead chiropractor? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you love to come in and the patient not need an adjustment? Mm -hmm. But due to your thorough analysis of how the body's working, if they're not, if everything's working great, the body's adapting, you're there to monitor and intervene when appropriate on that body. So I think it's more the analysis than the adjustment. Yeah, I do but you too. You want to be very skilled at that adjustment. Yeah, but I think we've—I think in some ways chiropractic has gotten away from that because you're yeah. right. Old school chiropractors—they understood. Um, what is it? The old BJ story where the person where he charges them a bunch of money, and they said you only adjusted one bone, and he's like, "Yeah, but you're paying me for knowing all the ones not to adjust." Yeah, it's also one that they do that with ship. Like some old mechanic goes down and bangs the engine twice on an old ship and it starts up, gives him a bill of $10,000. And they're like, you only hit the, you only hit, used a hammer. He's like, well, knowing where to hit, it's important. So <laughs> it's like, but, you know, and I tell students again, if we want to think about innate intelligence, innate intelligence job is to adapt. And the chiropractor's job is to introduce an adjusting thrust when needed to help the body use that force and adapt it. 
So when you introduce an adjusting thrust to the patient, you got a couple, you can do a shotgun, like a shotgun approach, like the flying seven you demonstrated. It's like more than likely the body's intelligent. It's going to adapt whatever force you put in. So a lot of flying seven chiropractors get patients better. So I always tell my students, and I love making up numbers, and I say, you know, like 80% of the patients you see get better. Mm-hmm. You're going to like have a happy customer base, but the job is to be more of a sniper than it is a shotgun. And to me, philosophically, it improves the likelihood that the body will adapt it the more precise you are. And I think that's where Gonset beautifully fits in. It's like, how specific can I make this input so I can improve the chances the body will adapt it and document what I did because if it didn't get the results I wanted, I'm not guessing on what I did previously to either continue if it's working or to discontinue if it's not. Yeah. 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 You made a comment earlier and it sparked my brain. It's kind of, it's a little off topic, but I want to go there anyway, Um, because you mentioned being in pattern. And so that's something that we actually talked about a lot at the media of the minds in regard to the scope um, and different ways of reading a scope, whether it's pattern or out of pattern. So um, I know people who go to, went to schools like I did, that was not something that was ever mentioned. And so it's kind of a foreign concept. So can you talk because I know that goes with subluxation as well. The idea of think of there being patterns like, What's your, what is your pattern and your, if it plays into adaptability? Yeah, you know, I was fortunate. Like I said, I had school same time as Dan. I was an intern at Herb Wood's office for three years. I had probably 26 Mount Horb seminars before I graduated. I kind of floated between GMI and Gunsid seminars as a student at Palmer, you know, numerous weekend seminars. Rick Burns was one of my instructors, Michael Bouvet. So, we, I mean, it's, I was fortunate to be taught by these people. And some of it's simple. It's like what I want to see when a patient comes in for their next visit is some sort of change. What freaks me out and gives me the worry is if they're not changing. So changing is adaptability. Not changing is you're not adapting. To kind of oversimplify it. So is that if that scope is and that break is the exact same segment, this exact same magnitude of a break. I'm not looking at that. Like, yes, <laughs> I'm like, damn it. Like I want to see some sort of change. Like, and it's okay if it even gets a little worse to me, like, Thanks, because yeah. then something's happening, but when it's not changing, that's when I personally freak out. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like if I'm doing something, I know I made a difference, and it's telling me I didn't. Then I'm like, okay, I got to. I, I I always tell the patient, it's time to go on safari. Let's go hunting. Yeah. I can go find something else. What's the Gonstead quote? Don't don't question the the principle. Question the push your application. application. Yeah. 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 So, you know, it's. I'll kind of tie up the first segment, but for me personally, I think a subluxation. I think categorically. You know, students like, you don't give me your definition. And I'm like, I'm not here to tell you what to think, but I will give your audience. For me, a subluxation has a mechanical, it's a biomechanical issue that affects the nervous system in some way. And it also interferes with innate intelligence communication to the body and affects adaptation. So, I mean, that's that's how I categorize a subluxation. So that way the philosophical fits, the science fits in a section of that. And it also fits with those operational definitions. 
So you should be able to see any definition of subluxation and think, is this a philosophical, scientific, consensus, or outcomes-based? But what I want to do, David, if you got a second, is I basically, uh, like I said, went through the literature, pulled out some studies on chiropractic, and they are on subluxation, and they are a complete hodgepodge. Okay. So just to give the audience uh, a little indication of what science is showing for chiropractic. First one, Stephanie Sullivan at Life University. I think she's an amazing researcher. Doesn't get enough credit. Um, in 2020, in Active Biomed, she shows that the adjustment alters blood pressure, which you know we kind of knew from um, oh, the upper cervical Dickholt study. Um, but it's most supportive in the literature that cervical adjustments have an effect on blood pressure more so than thoracic and the lumbars. And more than likely, it's like future studies are to be needed to show <laughs> that. So I think that's good because that's indicating that the adjustment has an effect on physiology of the body. Mm -hmm. Another good one um, was Miller in 2018, the Journal of Upper Cervical Chiropractic Research showed that uh, AO adjust, uh, adjustments improved balance. And of course, if you want to imply that, improved balance should, I got to make sure I use my science words, it could be hypothesized that improved balance will reduce falls. So then you can infer that chiropractic would be good for the elderly. And I know Kelly Holt in New Zealand did some studies on does balance improve in the elderly after chiropractic care. So that, Yeah, we also know, we know associated wise that the worse your balance is, the closer you are to death. And so old people yeah. tend to lose their balance worse and worse until they inevitably die. And so if you're improving balance, then in theory, you're also moving people away from death. So that yeah. would be And to tie back to our patient education talk, don't do a tennis ace on everybody. I tell students to educate patients like laying chicken nuggets down a hallway. You know, <laughs> it's like... Chick-fil-A nuggets, you'll get anyone to walk down a hallway picking up one nugget at a time. So don't don't try to like you can have a study of the week. You can talk about a vertebra of the week. You can talk about a concept of the week. And, you know, Rob Sinnott always harped on me and, you know, from our influence from Dr. Barge, like, hey, this is what T8, T6 does this, 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 this. You know, next time you come in, make sure we talk about it, you know, or I'm going to ask you a couple questions about it. So you don't want to overwhelm them, but try to take it to that person the best you can. So there's two good ones. Let's follow up with a bad one. Um, basically, the first study is not bad. Kramer et al. in 2011 in JMPT showed that when you adjust somebody's side posture, the involved side up zygapophyseal joint gaps more than the involved side down one. And then my response was like yours, David. Okay. Like, <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, I, can, I can see that and make sense. But what's interesting was in 2003, there was a study by um, Flynn that shows that cavitation is not associated, not associated with improved clinical outcomes. Hmm. So just because a joint pops, doesn't mean that you have imp improved range of motion and decreased pain of a patient. So I have a thought about that zygopophyseal one. I've had a silly yep. up for like 10 seconds. 
Um, my thought is, if you are adjusting the way the way I've seen most students do lumbar side posture, they're going, they're basically adjusting it going I to S. That would create increased gapping of the upside zygopophyseal joint. However, in Gonstead, we're generally going to put the open side of the wedge up, and we're going to torque it down. So I would yeah. think what you're doing, what you're doing would matter. And so that might be true for certain ways of doing it, but not universally true. So I just think that's interesting. Well, it's interesting because, you know, what scares me, the first one was like, okay, but the, the one is saying that, you know, there's two studies within chiropractic. One, it shows where you put the force doesn't mean that's where the cavitation occurs. And philosophically, I think that's fine because once you introduce a force, innate will, will basically use it wherever it needs it. But politically, in the chiropractic profession, they're using that study to say, therefore, techniques that teach specificity shouldn't be included because where you put the force doesn't mean that's where the adjustment occurs. Interesting. So that scares me to death as a yeah. gone, you know, a gone said person. Yeah. Well, I think it would also, there's a number of, there's upper cervical technique, like say uh, Atlas orthogonal is incredibly specific. I, I think it would scare them too. Yeah. But I mean, it's like fascinating. So then, well, some of them are like, well, I'm specific, but I don't have audibles associated with my technique. Therefore I'm safe. You know, <laughs> and it's like, so sometimes it's science that's showing some mixed bags but it's oftentimes the political ramification of these is that one I wanted to show. Um, another one that's cool. Um, this was a osteopath and uh, Suratelli in 2020 is a DO that came out in nature. So a Mac daddy publication says that osteopathic adjustments or manipulations causes a bold response in interoception. So interoception is how the body perceives what's going on inside of it. So this is doing functional MRI that shows that interoception has a dramatic increase of activity after an osteopathic manipulation. Hmm. So it's cool because we can like relate to osteopathic uh, manipulation to chiropractic adjustment. It's bad. Chiropractors aren't doing this research. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so there's always some political... Um, another good one, um, this was by uh, Water, Waterstone et al. in 2020 in Brain Sciences. It showed that adjustments after uh, alter functional connectivity of the brain of stroke patients. And e you'll see EEG changes. So we see that you know, stroke patients that get adjusted, the brain's trying to connect more, and it shows on EEG. So that's awesome. That's awesome. You know, because we're showing how we can have an increased effect on brain. Here's, a, here's one that scares me to death. So when you look at science, oftentimes evidence-based science is, is indicated as a triangle. On the lowest is expert opinion. Then you have case studies. And then eventually you go to an RCT. And at the very top, the most MacDaddy of the form of MacDaddy science is called something called a systematic review, where they take a meta-analysis of all the research given to it. So there was a global summit of chiropractors in 2021, happened in Canada. So it was published in the Journal of Chiropractic and Manual Therapies. Now, most of the time, this is a peer-reviewed journal, but most of the anti-vitalistic articles 
appear in this journal. It's based out of Australia. So this global summit of chiropractic researchers, and I don't know who was included or excluded in the invitation. Or who left at noon. <laughs> yeah, or who left at noon. Now, we're, we're basically creating a systematic review. So the top level of evidence, David, it says that there's no evidence, no evidence that adjustments have any effect on physiological processes of the body. Which that's an odd conclusion considering the other studies you just read off. Well, particularly they're looking at an organ, an organ yeah. function. So you can't say chiropractic improves cardiovascular or chiropractic improves digestive or chiropractic helps asthma. It's got to be the lungs, the heart, the liver, the pancreas. Yeah, no organ. Yeah, no. So, so basically what most of these researchers have done is they, they're the ones that really want to limit chiropractic to musculoskeletal issues only. And the reason why is musculoskeletal fits science the best, you know, so low back pain, headaches, this chiropractic effects autonomic function is not really supported. So they didn't say may, they said not. Now, if I'm an outside party looking at the literature, I see chiropractors saying that they do this, but the top form of evidence is the systematic review. And there's something there as the Mac Daddy form of evidence says that there's no effect on adjustments on overall autonomic function. Mm -hmm. That one scares me. Yeah. Yep. Um, another bad one. Same journal. Um, Goncalves, I think is how you say it in 2018, says there's no evidence to support chiropractic as a credible approach to primary prevention or early secondary prevention of health. So chiropractors saying, hey, you get an adjustment and improves your overall health and function of the body. They're saying there's no evidence. So the challenge is oftentimes, you know, legitimate science gets in. And I'm not saying these are legitimate or not legitimate, but legitimate science gets into literature and some that are not. But what's written and has gone through a peer review process is what's there. So all this to me indicates that we need to support research better. Mm -hmm. Get that, you know, if Stephanie Sullivan shows that we go back to Stephanie Sullivan's it showed that cervical adjustments all lowers blood pressure. That is 100% against what that systematic review says. Yeah. So it's like the more like, so Stephanie, if you don't want to do research yourself, you don't want to publish, then you need to support some chiropractor that's doing the research that kind of supports your philosophy and your vision. Well, because if you look at, if you know science and you do science, and I teach a science course for life right now, um, it, you can really shape the outcome based on your inclusion exclusion criteria. And mm -hmm. that is the stunt that a lot of a lot of people use is you can see this that they came to and sometimes you'll see the conclusion be like, well, how did they come to that? Go back up and see what their inclusion exclusion criteria is. And you're like, there's like old jokes about it, how you can you can prove there's an old joke about one that says that you can prove that sex doesn't lead to pregnancy. All you have to do is exclude all the pregnant patients. Um, and exclude all the patients that are that are like you do that kind of inclusion criteria, and all of a sudden it's like, well, we have people having sex and no babies, but it's your inclusion exclusion criteria that did it. And so there's an old joke about that because that is how you can do it. And so 
part of it is also raising the the science IQ of people so that when they see those stunts being played, we as a profession call it out and say, that's not legit. You're using your inclusion yeah. exclusion criteria to, to form the opinion you want to have. You have to be going back to you have to be a consumer of science mm -hmm. to know a good study when you see it and to know a bad study when you see it, you know, and and I, you know, I was immediately struck by the inclusion and exclusion. That's what they do with stroke and chiropractic. Yep. Have you seen a chiropractor? Not like the adjustment, this occur following an adjustment. It's like, have you seen a chiropractor in the last month? Well, it could be totally unrelated. <laughs> yeah. They don't but actually know about drugs. But if your inclusion and some of those stroke studies are one, a chiropractic type maneuver. So they weren't done by chiropractors. It'd be done by whoever else. Some are self-manipulation. Yep. And then they set up this. So causation and correlation are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, another bad one. I'll get two bad and I'll end on a good one. <laughs> Got three left. So Gladette um, in BMC Health uh, Services in 2021 um, basically says, what are the attitudes of chiropractic? And it has musculoskeletal, non-musculoskeletal, and traditional chiropractic, which means philosophical. And the conclusion was traditional beliefs may be barriers to professional legitimacy within mainstream healthcare. So in the literature is starting to show that those who are philosophical or vitalistic are holding back the profession from being accepted by mainstream healthcare. Um, the other bad one, and this is goes back to remember I said that um, the systematic review says that there's no outcomes. So Brian Budgel, who I like, in 2018 did a science kind of did a science review of all the chiropractic management of females with infertility. Now we know on a personal level, on the lowest form of evidence, everybody's had somebody who had challenges conceiving improve or have a baby underneath chiropractic care like chiropractic miracle babies are not that miracle one is because the body's doing exactly what it's supposed to do but two it's like it's so commonplace a chiropractor doesn't bat an eye about it so budgel says that while there's tons of case studies to support that chiropractic can help infertility there's not enough rcts or systematic reviews therefore we can't say so there's low form of evidence but not high form of evidence that chiropractic can help fertility therefore we should say chiropractic should not help fertility so the type of evidence is really important in discussion mm -hmm. but another one that probably didn't get enough is glucina uh, tanya in new zealand in 2020 she did one on on complementary theories in chiropractic or clinical practice and she reviewed the literature and says that probably 70% of chiropractors hold vertebral subluxation to be important. So it kind of mirrors that McDonald's study I talked about earlier, but you're not a weirdo minority within the profession if you hold subluxation to be important. It's oftentimes these very polarized minorities that are controlling the discourse within the profession. And a lot of it's academic, to be honest. Yeah. So. Yep. Yep. Talking to, but, and, I'm, and sometimes, you know, that that's another bone to pick. You have people that are in academics for the good and they're good chiropractors and they're making a difference. And you have academic people that have never seen practice and don't like being a chiropractor. So, I mean, you got to figure out who to support and don't lump all of them together. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
Yeah, if I hear those who can't teach one more time, I'm going to. No kidding. So she while teaching. <laughs> but that means, uh, you know, I, I was sitting there with Dan Lyons and Rob Sinnott and Dr. Barge was talking about a very famous chiropractor decided to teach chiropractic philosophy. Did the first class. It was like an hour or two hours. Came running to Dr. Barge and said, I have nothing left. I gave them everything I know. And it's like, of course, you got. 10 or 11 or 15 of these two hour lectures to give. So it's a special art to teach. You yeah. know, it's not something that just because you're good in practice, you can teach, nor if you teach, you're good in practice. So right. support those that are good at what they do. Well, I think so, the last thing I would say about subluxation for me is that um, I think there's a gap between knowing what a subluxation is and being able to find one with your hands. And I don't really think that the knowledge helps you to find them. And that might be something that's very complicated for people. So then if that's the case, then they go, well, my goal is to find them. Why do I need to know about them? But I think you need to know about them because like you said, it gives you certainty when you find them, but also because it helps you to communicate with your patients. And if you want referrals and you want more patients, they need to be able to tell the story yeah. for you. And that's how you're going to get there. Yeah. Chiropractic goes back to that simple pick up a Stevenson's chiropractic is a science, art and philosophy. It's mm -hmm. not meant to just be one. Yep. So, you know, we need more understanding of what's happening neurologically in the body. We need more people doing research and chiropractors to support those people. Give money to a researcher. You know, um, I like Stephanie Sullivan at Life. I think she's brilliant, down to earth, is really doing good outcomes-based research in chiropractic. So if you don't know who to go to, you know, pick your favorite. But if you don't know, check her, check her out. So I think you need to be consumer of science. You know, I never want to be put in a position where I'm talking. And if I have a PhD in biology coming in as a new patient, I don't want to sound like a complete idiot um, talking to patients. But also, you need to be versed on what's going on inside the profession politically. And that may mean that you need to support certain organizations that fit your philosophy because all of the, the studies I showed you are talked about, 10 of them. I just pulled from random over the last five years or 10 years. So there's just a, just a over, there's a lot of stuff being published. So oftentimes we're out of touch with science and science. Like my wife said this at a, it was her exit speech from chiropractic. And I had no idea she was doing it as a Palmer homecoming. She's like, researchers, you're out of touch with the profession. A wild applause. And she goes, Oh, don't applaud. You guys are out of touch with research. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> You just pissed everybody off, you know, <laughs> but it's it very true. So be consumer of science, support research and, and stay involved. Um, I think it helps with your communication certainty, but philosophically, you got to have certainty with what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen a lot of scared chiropractors don't know who they are. They don't know what they're. So, you know, I've been fortunate enough to, to have some good mentors and, and Gonstead fit my philosophy and, and I have a definition of subluxation is very congruent with my philosophy. So you got to be good with philosophy and they're not meant to be either or science or philosophy. But then again, it comes down to art, you know, and I want to have a, a good system of analysis. I want to have good adjusting skills. So I know that improves, improves the chance of the body adapts my force. So that's kind of all three are needed within chiropractic. And I, I think you see the relevance as well. Yeah.
Yep, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me. This, this has been great. It's, it's enjoyable to talk about subluxation because that is what we do. And yet oftentimes it gets put on a shelf when we talk about everything else. So I'm happy to talk about it. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, listening to this episode, two bald guys with glasses. <laughs> you know, <Mark. laughs> we have our own show on PBS. <laughs> David, it's great talking to you. I, I miss you and I hope that we... Our circles are come in contact quite often. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. I'll definitely have you back on here again. I enjoy these conversations. Thanks. All right. Thank you. You bet. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Russell for joining me. At one point, we were seemingly weeks from working literally around the corner from one another. But sadly, that didn't work out for either one of us. Nonetheless, I thoroughly enjoy my conversations with Dr. Russell, and I hope you do as well. Like myself, he has a passion for working with students and helping them to become the very best chiropractors that they can become. I like to point out that the vitalistic perspective, as we talked about, is totally legitimate and acceptable. However, vitalism is often abused when it's used as justification for just doing anything without regard for the uniqueness of the patient. Whether it's a mechanistic or vitalistic point of view, we only create health when we do the right thing in the right way and at the right time. In other words, specificity is just as important for vitalism as it is for mechanism. I think that's why Gonstead doctors are as good at getting mechanistic results as they are at getting vitalistic results. It's the specificity, and specificity matters. Well, I hope you found this conversation helpful today. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.